0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror
1: cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. There are a lot of reasons people are attracted to horror in just as many shades of black. Horror is personal. Horror is intimate. We all experience it in different ways. But fear is universal, even though it takes many forms. There are so many stories that are told under the horror umbrella, some of them drenched in blood and guts, some of them quietly creeping under our skin. Ghost stories, monster mashes, zombies, found footage, horror comedies, gore fests. They can be brainy or brainless, visceral or thought-provoking, adult or adolescent, or in some cases, all of the above. What some fans embrace, others despise. But one thing horror fans have in common is their sense of ownership of the genre they love. They buy the books, the Blu-rays, the soundtracks. They possess the things they love. They go to the movies, the festivals, the conventions. You don't see comedy conventions, western conventions, drama conventions, but horror cons are a fact of life. There's a sense of community there, a brother and sisterhood of an attraction to the outré. Some people get into writing or shooting horror to make money at it because it's their entree into the marketplace. Others do it for the love of the genre. Eli Roth is one of the latter. There are few more passionate practitioners of dark-hearted cinema than Eli, whose work as a writer, actor, producer, and director is as pure with love of genre as anyone I know.
0: This is Postmortem with Mick Garris.
1: You come from a different background than a lot of other horror filmmakers. I mean, your father was a a psychotherapist and, and at Harvard Medical School, your mother was an artist so you've got left brain, right brain, center brain all going on. So tell me how that kind of led to this love of Love of
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, I I never thought of myself as a horror filmmaker. And I completely understand why people would refer to me as that, because those are the moves I've made. And that's what, you know, what I'm known for. Um But in my mind, I was just always telling stories I loved. I never thought, oh, I'm a horror filmmaker. I, have to, I just, I just approached it like, this is a story that interests me. Or anytime there was something that was like forbidden, like, oh, you shouldn't talk about that. Like, the, I remember... Howard Stern saying, if he thought of something and he thought, I shouldn't say that on air, he compulsively had to say it. I had that similar compulsion that's growing up in school. If there was a joke, I would raise my hand and the teacher would call me. And the joke would have to be so funny and clever that the teacher couldn't get mad if it was like a really (laughs) distasteful comment. So that was, um, but growing up, you know, I grew up in the seventies and the eighties. I was born in 72. So as a kid, I missed out on the drive-in movies. Yeah. And it was the my friend's older brothers that were teenagers that were seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left. I was young enough just before VCRs and cable television. So there was something about these movies that were so forbidden. like And you never got to see them. Imagine if there was a movie... Everyone you know is talking about it because kids are talking about what their older brothers are talking about. And that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn of the Dead. The Forbidden Fruit. The the, the Forbidden Fruit. And you, as a kid, know, damn it, by the time I'm old enough to see this, it's gone from the theaters. And if a movie was gone from the theaters, its only chance of your seeing it was on television. And the movies that I wanted to see were never going to make it to television. So you heard words like Suspiria, but you didn't know what it was. Then... That all changed, you know, in the mid '80s, early to mid '80s, when VCRs became affordable and these video rental stores. So I, you know, in the '80s, really became a child of the video store, and I just like—I remember being 11, 12, 13 years old, gorging on these movies. But to get to your point about the psychoanalyst and the artist mother, you know, my mom had been a teacher; she's a music teacher in the New York City school system. My father's psychiatrist, psychoanalyst. He—they always looked at these as stories, and my mom would say, "Well, look at Goya paintings; they're incredibly violent." and And my father would say, well, this is, none of this is real violence. This is all a representation of violence. And of course, we're Jewish, so there's a very, very strong Holocaust education. So there's, at a certain point, when you're watching people's heads being chopped off, it's like, well, you know what the Nazis did? They took children and turned them into furniture. I mean, my parents were so matter of fact in terms of explaining to us what happened in Nazi Germany mm-hmm. and that, okay, our grandparents got out, but there were cousins on my mother. side, so, you know, distant relatives that didn't make it out. So it was just like this constant conversation in our household growing up of the Holocaust, the Holocaust. And that's their generation. I mean, my parents were born in uh you know 38 and 39 so they were like 5 and 6 years old and 7 years old when this was ending mm-hmm. so their childhood were people that were and they were in Brooklyn of people that were coming to the neighborhood with tattoos on their arms so imagine being 10 11 and 12 and there's a whole thing of like your cousin Herbie's coming over. Don't ask him about the camps. So that's that generation. That's what they're raised with. And they pass it on to their children to really make sure to be vigilant and make sure this never happens again. So it's a combination of loving ghost stories, loving scary stories, having a fascination, like sneaking, sitting with a flashlight, reading Skeleton Crew, or reading Stephen King in your bed under the covers at night, um, you know, when you're supposed to be going to sleep, um, but also always having this reflection of, well... You know, if you're not careful, what can actually happen, what humans are capable of is far worse than anything we could think of in our imagination.
1: Well, and and yet as an artist, as someone who creates work, um, it could have gone either way. It could have been that you'd want to repress that side or it could be that the way you have your your films are rather gleefully bloody. Yeah, <laughs> You know, they are. There, there is a joy about that. And there have been some choices you've made career-wise, like making an Italian cannibal movie, <laughs> yeah. like Green Inferno, rather than doing a studio movie. Um, but is that, I mean, that's a choice you obviously
0: made. You know, it's interesting. You know, I saw my mother growing up and she's a fantastic artist and still paints. My parents are both alive and well and they live in Los Angeles now. But my mom... She was at the Museum of Fine Arts School in Boston. So I would go and, you know, when I was a teenager and see her and meet everyone. And all of her artist friends, she was like the mom of all of them. So imagine this sort of Warhol-like factory of all these. You know, I look back now, they were like kind of 80s arts kids. And there were like, just like, she had a huge amount of gay friends in the 80s that were kind of dealing with the AIDS epidemic. And And they were always at our house all the time like our house is filled with like girls with pink hair which was like I was in suburbia so seeing meeting people like this and artists and painters was the coolest thing I loved it we loved it was expansive for you it was so expansive I mean I I wasn't a shelter kid I was pretty you know my parents were big on me kind of traveling and seeing the world and getting out beyond my circle of Newton Massachusetts I'm very thankful for that but it, it really, the the whole idea of people doing things to be labeled an artist, I found so absurd versus the people that were truly artists and just kind of did their thing, that they they didn't need an outside validation of an award or a stamp of someone saying, you're an artist, you're an artist. And my parents, something they really instilled in me is create what you love. You have to create something that you would want to see. And in film school, I remember kids were making student films of Schindler's List. This started 90 to 94 is when I was in film school. So kids were making these movies that were like, they were actually trying to make films about the Holocaust. And then you'd look at their video collection or, you know, the DVDs they had and it was like Zapped or Animal House <laughs> and Fast Times, Richmond High. And you'd think, okay, why are you not making something? Why are you making a movie that you would never want to watch? Mm-hmm. So, In the case of Green Inferno, I'm not making a movie because I think it's going to be a big hit, because I think everybody wants to see it. I'm making it because I thought, you know, there's nothing, there's no more unexplored unexplored territories in the world anymore. Everything has been geotagged and mapped and photographed. You know, you couldn't make an Italian cannibal movie because you'd totally be on the side of the villagers. And I like the idea of these kind of self-righteous social justice warrior kids. I mean, it's funny. We shot the movie five years ago, 2012. Wow. And you see it now and it's just even more... Relevant, these kind of self righteous kids that take it upon themselves that they're like we are on the side of right because we're tweeting, and they show up, and the cannibals don't know the difference. They're like you guys are invaders, you're our food supply. So I love, I, I'm very interested in clash of cultures, and all of my films in some way, whether it's Cabin Fever, whether it's Hostel, certainly, whether it's Knock Knock, yeah, whether yeah. it's it, you know, and I don't intentionally set out to do this, but to me, I'm very very interested when two cultures that totally believe they are on the side of right go head to head and just all sort of, you know, human behavior goes out the window. So
1: your first, your first attempt, you're telling a story, but you can't help but inform it with your personal views and depths and, and, and perceptions of the world around you. It's, deeper than that, even with something like cabin fever, like the original invasion of the body snatchers and the like, it's something, it's a spreading metaphorical sickness in a way.
0: Definitely. And it, it's, you know, it's interesting when, in Quentin Tarantino was really big on, he's like, write the text and the subtext will make itself present. You don't, when you, you know, when you're writing, you don't think about the message of the movie. It, you actually start to lose track of the story. I'm, I, I remember, you know, reading David Mamet's book on directing and you know, he's, he talks about, he's like, if you want to get a girl to sleep with you, you don't say you look hot. You say that's a pretty dress and just indirect dialogue. And that if he, when he's writing a play, if the audience isn't asking what's going to happen next, he's dead in the water. He knows he's gone too far off the rails. And, you know, it's interesting because you don't think of David Mamet's movies as plot They're very character, interesting, stylized movies, but he's at the core of it. He's thinking what happens next. So whenever you're, whenever I'm writing a movie, I think uh, the audience, I'm myself, the first audience member thinking, Ooh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So you just sort of write the movie from that point of view, but really with cabin fever, it was these, it's always, and it, it's weird. There, there are certain themes that kind of fascinate me. And maybe it was being from when I was a teenager and I went to Russia in 1989. And there was a very superior attitude in America about Russia and the Russians mm-hmm. are communists. And this is before social media or internet. So you, no one really had a way of communicating with them. So everything we learned about them was basically fed from the news or in Boston, there was a big Russian immigrant population. So you'd always have Russian kids in your high school and they offered a trip and I went there and I was 17 and I met a girl there and I met kids my own age and they, you, they told us bring pictures, bring jeans. And I wound up just giving away everything I had. And I, I just, and I went back to Newton, Massachusetts. And I I felt like an alien and kids were like, I can't believe I only got a Jeep instead of an Acura Integra. Like I asked my dad for, right. and you couldn't judge them because they grew up in that world, but yeah, how they, could they think otherwise? The, right? the, the, their scope of the planet was just so unbelievably Limited. It was, it was crazy. And I liked in Cabin Fever how the kids think they're smarter than the locals and that they can talk down to them. And I really saw a lot of that where I grew up. It was very well educated, smart. Everyone's parents were doctors, lawyers, bankers, you know, like very high level people. But they, they just had a real, you know, this sort of insecurity made them look down on everyone else, on anyone that was poor, anyone that they perceived as less educated. And a lot of the results, they they didn't leave that area. They didn't go out, you know, outside of it and expand their horizon any. So I, I don't know. With cabin fever, that that sort of fear of disease terrified me. Probably growing up in the AIDS era, just mm-hmm. when you're at the age. When you're like 17 or 18, you're like, okay, let's let's have sex now, and everyone's like, nope, you have sex with the wrong person, you'll die, and there's no cure. It was a very different
1: world. I lost a brother to AIDS in 1992. She, oh yeah, and you know, it, it was very different from when I was a kid, when there weren't those fears. And
0: yeah, every everybody, it's. I mean, it's, I'm sorry you know, to hear that, but everybody, it's like every single person you knew knew, through, you were like, wh- you knew somebody who died of AIDS. It was like, yeah. especially my mom growing up in the art world, we'd all of those friends that grew up in our house, there were like half of them just were gone. And there was a thing of like, and then it suddenly, it wasn't a gay man's disease. It was everyone's disease. It was drug addicts. It was straight. So you, nobody really knew how big it was, how serious, if there were cures and then say, okay, use a condom. But what if the condom breaks? there, there, there was like this absolute terror of death and sex. And You know, all of those things sort of go perfect in a horror movie where someone has sex and they're gonna, they're gonna die, but. Well, the evolution of fear is an interesting concept too because,
1: you know, things change. The fears change. Fear is universal and fear is, is, um, you know, deeply planted. But. What causes those fears change? But xenophobia is one of them that mm-hmm. you touch on really great in Hostile. And yeah. it's a funny movie with great characters. And then it's like, holy shit. Yeah. what well, it
0: starts as Porky's or Last American Virgin. And then halfway. Th- through, switch, you know, switches to audition and you're watching people that right. you, even if they're kind of jackasses, they're fun jackasses and you like, you like them. And then Jay Hernandez's character, who's kind of the worst offender of the bunch has to redeem himself and the audience. So the audience, I wanted the audience to feel Stuck with someone they don't really know, that they don't really like, that they then are sort of forced to root for. And there's no subtitles. There's no nothing. It's just there's no explanation for any of it. And it's really not until he goes back in to try and save the girl when he can save himself that the audience is like, okay, we care about this guy. And that was, those were the kinds of things that you can do when you make a horror movie for, you know, three or $4 million without a studio, you're doing it independently and it just was kind of a fluke that movie it was a hit. Now, that movie was not, we didn't do it thinking it was, we just said, okay, if we make it for $3.8 million, we know on DVD, we can at least make our, make our money back. Um, and that was, uh, you know, the, the xenophobia I was fascinated by also this, it was kind of this George Bush America of we're going to police the world and this real attitude of superiority of our money can buy us anything. And now of course, you know, so you look ten years later, where now with ISIS, there's an ideology that our money doesn't mean anything. It's just this, this is a belief you're fighting. You're not going to get. You're not going to buy your way out of that. So the idea that your money doesn't have power over someone is a terrifying thing to Americans because the Americans, their whole source of power is our army and our money. And when those two what things, what you can pay for, what you can pay for, what you can buy, and you know that that's what these kids go in and they're they're buying these women. They're you know they're buying. Their, they're basically like. Fun experiences for them, and and the, the the fun with hostile. I mean, in cabin fever, no one dies from the disease; they die from their crazy reactions to the <laughs> disease. It's everyone's behavior that gets right. them killed. And in hostile, they're not like. I mean, they are kidnapped and dragged, but they they could leave. Like after one guy disappears, the two friends like, they could walk to the train station, get on train station and go. And they don't because they want to do it one more time. They just want a little bit more. And they say, like, they look at the girls and they're like, okay, when, you know, when I'm in law school and you're a writer thinking of stuff to write about this, like these women, they're not real women. They're just like experiences for them Mm -hmm. that they can joke about later. Mm -hmm. And they pay the ultimate price. Even Jay Hernandez demands to be taken to his friends. And they're like, all right, fine. You know, all right, we'll take you there. So, so I like that. I like when you watch a character who thinks that they're right and they're compulsive. You know, the kids in Green Inferno, insisting that they're right, insisting that, you know, their protest works, that actually, you know, it actually shuts it down, or so they think, and then the the plane crashes, and the people that they rescued, who didn't care about them, who didn't need them, who didn't want them, um, you know, they've become their food supply. I just love the irony of that. Oh, yeah, and uh, well, let's
1: talk about technical issues too. It felt to me, and we talked about this at the time when I first saw Hostel, Cabin Fever, as much as I like it, it's a wonderful movie and the like, but cinematically, Hostel was like a window had opened for you yeah. and you saw a different way of making movies. And even though you had been going to film school, making it in a real world, I mean, the the technology and the tools were put to use in a much more sophisticated way.
0: Well, thank you. I mean, look, Cabin Fever... You're, we did it for a million and a half dollars and we shot it in a cabin. I mean, there's right. only, and we built the cabin and so it sort of has the evil dead Two thing of the Definitely. interior of the cabins a little bit bigger than the exterior. We're doing a little of that in nightmare, but right? it's, it's fine. It's okay. But you know, cabin fever, it was interesting and it's a very good point you raised, Mick. And I appreciate you saying that because cabin fever was like everything is a kid you wanted to do in a movie that just explodes in your first film. You know what your first film is like you're doing it. And by the way, I, I told you that like, my experience of seeing Sleepwalkers when I w- saw it at the Chelsea Cinema opening night in a sold out crowd, awesome, and it was my first time like seeing a horror movie with like a full black audience. Oh, really? And uh. when they, the opening scene, there's this kiss, and he goes, "I love you, mom." This girl <laughs> goes, "That's white people for you," and the whole audience <laughs> lost it. And it was one of the best viewing experiences ever. So it's have to say, but there's there's something in a first movie. That you do, where it's like every little fetishistic thing, like okay, the shot of Marcy's ass. This is my Texas Chainsaw Massacre swing shot. The okay, this is my Night of the Living Dead ending with Jeff getting shot. This is the every little thing you do is like this is my Evil Dead shot. This right. is my, it's like all the stuff you love that you dreamed of doing in a movie. I used five songs from Last House and the Left. We're like I just like everything. That it's like it's like that movie, you can see it as a movie, but for super horror fans, it's just like reference after reference after reference. And I made a very conscious choice on Hostel. I used a Czech DP named Milan Khadima, who had done second unit on Narnia's and worked with Terry Gilliam and Brothers Grimm. Amazing DP. And both of us said, these are the movies. Okay, I'd seen different movies. I'd seen Audition, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. I'm an to film thesis. Like there were a number of movies that I'd seen and I said, I'm not going to watch. I mean, we're, we'll talk about look, but I'm not going to watch any movies while I'm making this movie. I'm going to approach every scene on instinct. We're going to watch the scene. I'm going to rehearse it. And I'm going to find the angle as we do it. Plus, and it was Guillermo del Toro who told me how great it was to shoot in Prague. When you're shooting in Prague, I said, I want to shoot as much, you know, cabin fever's in a cabin. So hostel, you want to expand it and shoot the world. And we found these amazing towns in Chesky, Kremlov, and the hostel, everything you're doing, the locations were so spectacular that I think we, you know, we did two days on a stage. And it was just one of the rooms where we had one room that we just redressed. That was the torture room. But everything else, the entire labyrinth, the whole place, they were all practical locations. And we said, we're not going to, you know, I'm going to bleed out the color that once Oli's orange jacket gets taken away, you know, we're not going to do it with digitally or anything, we're going to, like, really look at the production design, mm-hmm. that the opening is very colorful, everything is done in a three-shot, it all feels very warm, it feels very safe, then it starts to get cold, they start to get shot in single, the colors get more muted, the, you know, the sound design, the factors, and basically it turns into eraser head or Schindler's List, where at the end I want everything in ash and gray and, yeah, black, and wa- black and white. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much black and white. it's pretty much black and white. So monochromatic. So Monochromatic, but but those were, but it was also me saying, if I keep leaning on my favorite films, then I'm not growing I, I, you can take the risk because you know that, you know, there's a way there's a safety in looking at a sequence of an old movie going, yeah, you know, this works. I can shoot it like this, right. but then you're not developing your own voice and your own style. And hostile was still a very low budget movie and you're still mm-hmm. shooting, you know, three scenes a day. It was a very fast, very difficult shoot. And I had a terrific, terrific cast. Um, and then in hostile two you know, you're going even further. You're trying to like push yourself cinematically or green inferno. So there are certain movies that you love, but whenever I make a film, now i always just rehearse it and rehearse it and try and find the shots you have you have the vision in your head but you 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 just have to be open to kind of figuring it out and finding it as you're doing because it, it's really the only way to develop your own voice
1: yeah being a slave to uh shot lists or storyboards is it's a protective way of doing it but walking the tightrope wire or being there in the moment and go oh this would be great if we did this yeah it, there's Always this thing of having to be on schedule and on budget and yet trying to be open to new creative thought during the process.
0: Of course. And that's, you know, having a really, really good collaboration with your DP. You know, I've, I worked with a a really terrific Dutch DP named Rohir Stoffers on Death Wish, which we just did. And that was my first studio movie, but it was still, you know, every day rehearsing with the actors, finding, and I would, you know, we, we had our shot lists in terms of these are the basic, and I did it for very complicated scenes involving shooting. Okay. We have two days to get this sequence right, and or all have of this stunts or effects, you need stunts, effects, out. every, all of this has to get done. I'm going to shot list it and storyboard it, but we can maybe as we're doing it, figure out that, okay, we can cross off this and cross off that. Um, those are the times I like to do it. Other times, if it's just a dialogue scene, I bring in the actors or rehearse it. And Rohir and I, we kind of, we look at where we are in the film, how we've done other scenes and just kind of find your way through it and find the shots as you're doing it. And then sometimes you want to go back and, ah, we should have done it this way. And maybe if you're good and you have time and you have money, you get to go back and, and redo something. Cause you're like, ah, oh, damn it. This is the ingredient it was missing. So I think that shot lists can be helpful in terms of, I think what shot lists do more than anything is it gives the crew, the confidence that you have a plan. Right. And when the crew feels there's a list, they like to cross their way through it. Mm-hmm. And even if the shot list is bullshit, If you can stable (laughs) it to the call sheet or I distribute it to the crew, Mm -hmm. everyone goes, there's just like everyone relaxes and they work harder because you can tell when people feel like the director doesn't really have a plan (laughs) that that, that's when things, they start to move slower and things go awry. But that's also the fun in it is, is finding those moments and finding that ideas and coming up with something that was never scripted or planned that just comes to you and kind of makes the scene.
1: Yeah. For me doing a shot list, I'll normally shot list the week's work on the weekend before. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's just, I have then shot it in my head once. Yes. And I may never look at those lists during production, but I'll give it to the department heads and the like, just so everybody's on the same page what we're doing. But let's go back to the host- hostile saga. Um, hostile 2 really had a very different vibe about it, you know, and I'm sure it was very intentional and it did not connect as well with the audience. What do you think was, a, it's a less funny movie for sure.
0: Yeah. Well first, you know, Bob Weinstein, you know, it's it's interesting because Hostel was such a shock to people. I mean, David Letterman was talking about it in his top 10. It became, an answer wow. in the new york times crossword puzzle i was on fox news like it crossed yeah, yeah. Over. it was a phenomenon it, well it crossed over out of being because it brought up something about what is going on in culture it, it was there was narnia and king kong and then Hostel came along and it was this moment where that was when the term torture porn got created and neil edelstein uh i said his name not neil it was david, david edelstein. edelstein uh neil Edelstein's producer yeah. david edelstein's um article in new york magazine about what is going on our audience is getting off from the violence and that was my comment was that violence it's a movie of violence as entertainment so suddenly i became the target and i just thought the best way to deal with it was to escape into continuing the story but not trying to i was like i don't want to necessarily go for a crowd pleaser if i keep my costs low the movie will make money right now I think that what happened was Bob Weinstein said something very funny. He goes, You didn't make Hostile 2, you made Hostile 6. In the time (laughs) that the movie was made, you know, I sort of did it very fast. I was like, okay, the movie Hostile 1 comes out in January and explodes, and I do the press tour by by April. I was like, I wrote a movie fast, I was in production by September, and then shooting it. The movie opened on June 8th. And I remember it was we were split between two studios. And the two studios, because neither one owned it hundred percent they didn't want to open it against their big movies, so it became this orphan, which sort of worked out for us, because no one expected the first movie to be a hit. It just got put on January 6th, which was considered Dead Weekend, Right. and it hit. It was just timing, culture, people went to the movies. When you open against Shrek 3 and Pirates of the Caribbean 4 in <laughs> June, it's not a fun summer movie. I don't yeah. think the market, everyone just figured, oh, it's hostile to, it'll be fine, it'll do its thing, but, you know, they had their own franchises for October, and so there was no thought
1: into the distribution.
0: Of a the film, little right? bit, or it just sort of was like, they said to me, you can open against Harry Potter or Ocean's 13, and you go, I don't, you know, it's uh, June or July are the wrong dates yeah. to open this movie. Independent horror movies tr- uh, traditionally but here's, better. But here's the thing. The movie made so much money. Really? They made a third. You, right. you don't have right. a Hostel 3 unless Hostel 2. Hostel 2 was such a hit, but... Uh, Nikki. Well, Nikki Fink and others. People because the first one was a phenomenon. It's like basically if you don't repeat the phenomenon, you're a failure. Which it didn't. The whole movie made fifteen million at the box office. Second one, first one made. 20 million it wasn't new anymore right. i don't first of all i don't know the reasons i don't know the taste maybe people were tired of it there was a huge backlash captivity had opened a month earlier and so everything was anti-torture porn Torture porn that term didn't exist before hostile it was a new thing mm-hmm. and suddenly there are all these other kind of ultra violent movies people were tired of it people just didn't want to see it for whatever reason maybe it was a title hostile too maybe it was about, there's no way to know all i know is people that saw the movie loved it over time DVD the film exploded it was phenomenal and they said we're making part three and I try, you know they're like I wasn't involved in it but they're like we're gonna do it you can't stop it's like the movie was a huge money maker you were ready to be done with it. after. I too. was totally done because this was three years of my life. I didn't want to sit in it. Even in the editing rooms, it's people screaming. like <laughs> it's It grim. gives me a headache. It's yeah. grim. And you don't want to be in that headspace. And like your taste changed. But also, I needed a break. You know, I had been so hyper-focused on being a director and making horror movies and being successful and doing this thing. And then it all hits at like 32 and hostile and hostile. It was like 34, 35. Suddenly, I was like, wait a minute. This has been like, I'm, you know... 35 years old and I've just like done everything every day of my life has been obsessing over over like you know success and making as a director now I've done now I'm going through you know it, it's the moment you look back where you're being offered like huge studio movies because I was on all of those lists you know I had that that moment where you're the guy, everyone in town wants you. Absolutely. And I just thought... You were a brand. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to necessarily do this. Do I really want to wake up every day and think about this superhero or that kind of thing? And at the time, I was like not interested. I just sort of, I kind of wanted to figure out what I wanted to do next. Quentin gives me this amazing opportunity to act in Glorious Bastards. And I thought this would be the coolest pivot if I can totally reinvent myself, the way I look, what I think I know about acting, relearn acting, directing the actor from that perspective by completely submitting to this process. And, you know, to be like a Jewish character that gets to shoot Hitler (laughs) and be on screen next to Brad Pitt. And then of course meeting Christoph Waltz and Michael Fassbender. I mean, it's like one of the coolest, most amazing experiences of my life. You're not doing it to become an actor. You're just like, diving into this process, thinking, I just want to see what happens. It's and evolution, also producing. Too, yeah. yeah. And like suddenly, you know, your last exorcism and Man with the Iron Fists and these other projects, I just was in a position where I was like, wow, finally, here I am, like financially independent and that affords you choices. And I'm just going to kind of do what I want. I'm not going to do something that necessarily is going to get me more money or more power in Hollywood. I just honestly was like, I have enough money. I'm fine. I'm going to do what I really love. And some things are going to connect and some things aren't. And you just got to try and make everything great. Now it's interesting kind of stepping back, seeing what I really love. It's like, okay, I've done it Writing, producing, directing. I love directing. I don't have to be like, the like writer producer director. I don't have to do all that I can work with other producers I'm open to reading other screenplays and that was Death Wish where it was a script that existed and I came in and I rewrote it and but it was but still, that's what I wanted to ask you about too fun. you know it, everything was a film by Eli Roth from
1: conception to uh, execution and
0: even though I never took that credit
1: by the way no which I it's a credit I don't really believe in until you've really earned it yeah you know? and uh, you obviously have but it's a choice I've uh, yeah yeah I've taken it once. But, um, you know, the idea of doing something not as a director for hire so much, but on a project that you did not originate. And I think it's really bold to have made that choice not to go into the incredibly financially rewarding studio system for so long when you had so many opportunities. But what was it like the first time you were working from somebody else's script or a project that you did not originate?
0: Well, there were other projects that I was on attached to that didn't happen for well, one reason. I want reason, to talk about those for two one things. reason or another. And you can't really fully explain the details without somebody looking bad. So you just have to kind of say, No, it just didn't work out with creative but but you start to see what it's like when You're brought in because you have an idea, you have a point of view, you say, I know, I think these are what I would do to make this a great film. And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you get down the road and they go, whoa, 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 you're changing this too much, you're changing this too much. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're just like, do I really want to wake up every day and execute these mediocre ideas that are being forced upon me. And then if the movie doesn't work, everyone just blames me and I look like a lame filmmaker. And if you fight, then you're difficult. And it's just like, well, that's not, there's gotta be a way to do it where you're making a movie where you are getting in your ideas. You're, you're making, you're like looking at the project going, how can this be great? How can this be fresh? How can this be original? And, you know, I started looking at like John Sturgis. I just started looking at directors or David Fincher, even all these people are, are writing their, you know, have a hand in writing them for sure, even if they don't have the credit. Um, you know, Spielberg, obviously there's like, there's so many directors that whose films I love that are not ideas that weren't theirs. I mean you look at Stanley Kubrick, I mean, he adapts everything. So uh, I, I just thought, well, oh, it's kind of rare for I said, a, for a I great director
1: to have been a writer as well.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's also, you think I can't first, it's time to change it up. I'm going to, if I'm going to grow as a director, I want to do this, I want to go through this process and again submit to this process fully with just a very open mind about it, about saying, okay, this is someone else's idea, this is someone else's project. Can I come in and do my own thing and make it great while still serving what they want? And it was a terrific experience. You know, Death Wish was the right one because I said, look at Unforgiven, look at Sicario, and really David Cronenberg's history of violence and eastern promises you know, those two movies are very, very much Cronenberg, but it's also Josh Olsen's and Steve Knight's incredible writing. I mean, these are – it's like you have a match of terrific writing, amazing direction, perfect casting, and fantastic execution. So it's also – yeah, it's David Cronenberg's movie. It's also Josh Olson. It's, it's like you, he's taking great material – And he's doing something so incredible with it that it's inspiring. You know, you look at Sicario and I thought that Juarez sequence in Sicario was so terrific. You were just like, you know, it's that kind of pure, captivating, hypnotic. And I thought that's what, that's what this can be. You know, you look at David Webb People's script for Unforgiven and what Clint Eastwood does with that movie. Um, you know, and the performances and the casting and the filmmaking. And I realized that I'm best when I wake up every day and I'm making a movie and I have a project to focus on. I don't do well when I have too many options and mm-hmm. that this, the timing worked out. The producer, Roger Birnbaum, is really just such a great guy. We just laugh all the time. And MGM was terrific. They said, we, they said, I actually said, look at Sam Raimi, the way his skills play into You know, the the early horror movies play into what he did with Spider-Man and Peter Jackson, the early horror films he did played into Lord of the Rings. But really look at David Cronenberg and the kill scenes and the tension. Look at how all that works in history of violence and Eastern Promises and the bath fight. You know, that's what I can bring to you. You can take the hostile torture scenes can translate to Death Wish because I will give you spectacular set pieces. And I can also give you the added value of giving it, you know, really try to get a great, let's go for the unbreakable, let's go for the looper, let's go for that great Bruce Willis performance. And he really, really brought it. So the and, studio is and, Well,
1: the idea of doing a remake in the first place, um, this is your first one. Uh, yeah. Well, you produced the remake of Cabin Fever. I was a producer on it, uh, or yes, as that I <laughs> your say. name L- was. On my it. name was on it, yeah. yeah. But uh, the the process, what there's also a fine line to walk there too on what you keep, what you what you change, what you update it, 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 to turn a movie from the '70s into a movie of our era. You know, what was that process in this particular very famous vigilante kind of movie?
0: Well, we had to look at you know what's going on in the world in. 2016 2017 and that was very you know joe carnahan had written a draft was really smart that set it in you know set in chicago and he's a surgeon now he's not an architect so there were certain things that were changed certain things are updated but when i read it um and they talk about the news casters there's there a vigilante on the list it's like okay you can start with that but what i'm interested is sway in the morning and shade four or five who has you know the amazing hip-hop show but there are a lot of the rappers are on from chicago so I was like, that's the first thing I do is I would bring in sort of the what people know about Chicago violence. You need the hip hop sound. We need the voice of the people that are living in that community. And you can't, you know, it's 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 too racially charged. You can't just have a white guy walking into the South Side. It's not about. It can't be about that. It's you've got to have a, a balance. It's got to, you have to be very sort of smart in how you handle. The criminal, and it's not that we we didn't do that in the movie. So, but you also have to address it in a smart way. So it was was really the challenge was how do you make a movie that's going to have, you know, what 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 makes Death Wish Death Wish is that it is a controversial film, and how do you? say, okay, we know this is, this is vigilante justice. This is in an era when people are not trusting the police, where the police in Chicago are overwhelmed. How do you attack this in a very, very smart way? And so, you know, we went to Chicago and I met with the detectives and really talked about these people and talked about people that are living in the South Side, in those neighborhoods, and really trying to tell a compelling story that's not preachy, that's that's going to be exciting and give people what they want, but also sort of deals with things in a smart way. And, you know, Sway came in and he just did the most amazing commentary. And we also got man cow, who's one of their, um, their local radio personalities. So you really, you watch it and in the movie, in the context, you feel like it's really happening and everyone's just very openly dealing, discussing like, is this right? Is this wrong? Do you take the law into your own hands? And then, you know, the dangers of what happens when you start to justify things in your own mind I'm um, saying, well, I believe I'm right. So I'm just going to go and do this. Then it, it, you know, that, what kind of can of worms does that open? Um, and also in the original, he just, you know, his wife and daughter, like brutally raped and murdered by Jeff Goldblum <laughs> and his cohorts. Um, and then they're never dealt with again. They just sort of go up. So yeah. I thought, like, you're watching the original Death Witch. It's literally anyone that looks at him, he just shoots them. You're like, you can't do that. It's like, <laughs> it's not. It's like he's got to be trying to get the people that did this to him. Right. So he's yes, he's committing the vigilante justice and stopping crime, but ultimately, but it's focused. The, the underlying motive is how is this going to get me closer to the people that did this to me? Right. So that, it's just it's that was the fun. It's updating it in a smart way, and I'm really, you know, I'm really proud of the movie. I love it. Like I really loved working with Vincent D'Onofrio and Elizabeth Shue. And there's a, um, a newcomer named Camila Morone who's just amazing. She plays Bruce's daughter. he's the most incredible performance. So, and Bruce was, you know, he's an icon and someone that I love. And it was, a, it was just a pleasure to work with him and hear his stories about making fifth element. It's a very like open and warm guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, talking about all of the stuff and all the old movies, you know, that are talking about Die Hard and Moonlighting, he just, it was just a pleasure. So I had a, I had a really, really great experience. You're You're listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. We'll
1: get into more about Death Wish in just a moment, but first I want to tell you about Casper. For you, the listeners of Postmortem, Casper is offering $50 toward any mattress purchase at Casper.com. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for a life well-slept. Risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free shipping and painless returns. The Casper is now the most awarded mattress of the decade. Casper costs you $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a California king-size mattress. Comparing that to industry averages... That's an outstanding price point. To receive $50 toward any mattress purchase, go to caspertrial.com forward slash mortem. That's caspertrial.com forward slash mortem. Casper is C-A-S-P-E-R trial.com forward slash M-O-R-T-E-M mortem for $50 towards any mattress purchase. What is your process? What was, what did you have in mind technically on the design, the look, the colors, the shape, the format? You know, uh, do you have? A visually philosophical approach to each movie that's different, or yeah. something that's part of your personal. Well,
0: I think there's always stuff that's going to be your aesthetic. That these are the things I like, and you can tell, like when you watch Luchino Ful- Fulci's films, he's close up of eyes, or you know Argento's colors and different different things that directors. That's just who they are. So even though I think I'm going to okay, this will look totally different, I wind up going. It's just your taste. You can't right. you can't help it when you the way you frame a shot. But I also very think very much think that that we have to be in service of the story. And, you know, that's why Rohir Stofers, who had shot The Vow, for example, and School of Rock, and has a movie called Brimstone that's coming out. It's very kind of dark western. Um, you know, we talked about I liked I like European DPs. I really liked, you know, I mean my I had the Chilean DP for knock, knock and green inferno. I think there's something about them that give it a texture, a quality, a point of view that's different from other movies. And I think this isn't this isn't taken such John Wick. it's not a body count movie. It's a guy going crazy as he starts to lose his moral compass. Um, and I wanted it to look beautiful and he's a surgeon. So I knew we had a lot of hospital scenes and I loved the look of the vow. The hospital stuff was so lush. It was very beautiful. And that's what I think we needed. I think we needed something that looked like a big Hollywood glossy lush production. Um, that we could then just take into a guy going darker and going crazier and start pushing really the the darkness. And I really love that in Rohir's work and the way, I just love the way he lights scenes. So we looked at, you know, really Unforgiven, Sicario, these, these other movies, History of Violence, Eastern Promises. We looked at the design, we looked at the look, um, and, you know, we say this is what we want our movie to look and feel like. And he did some different tests and different colors and different things. We also watched the night of, you know, the way Uh, they, the night of we, we kept watching because that was like right before we started shooting, the night of was out and we started watching and we're like, Oh my God, look at the way they photograph Rikers and the way they do the close-ups and the way the focus goes and the way that, you know, there's no hard shadows, but a lot of darkness, a lot of dark dark, that soft dark and you know, the, the exterior night and the way they did the prison. It's so interesting. It's so visually compelling and obviously our film is a different pace than the night of, but that was one of the ones we thought, yeah, this is a terrific, look at how they're doing a the simple dialogue scene and the way the skin tones are and the softness, and the light, you know, and the, and that you feel the rot and you feel the, you know, the way those cells are and the, the rot on the walls and the decay and the people inside in the cages. It was just so beautifully done. Um, and that's what we wanted to go for. So you just sort of look at those markers and when you're in prep and then when you're getting there, you just start finding the shots and finding the things and you start to get to know your actors and you see what Vince D'Onofrio is doing. You see what Bruce is doing. You see what Elizabeth Shoe's doing and Bo Knapp, who's kind of our lead bad guy, is terrific, terrific actor. So it's just, it's just fun to find, you know, but, but really playing with darkness and, and shooting the home invasion scene like a Jalo suspense mm. invade, like really going for, True, you know, thriller moments, and then then going into action mode, and it's that that's what's fun. Also, Paul Kirby, my production designer, had just come off of Jason Bourne and had worked with Chris Nolan and Paul Greengrass, and we really just liked, you know, we just certain photographs and image, and you know, the, like the. The look of certain scenes. It looks beautiful. And
1: here it's your first studio film. But what that does afford you is access to production designers and directors of photography and people like that that might be yeah. out of your range for independent films.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you know, you're at a different price point. And by the way, that doesn't always mean they're better. I mean, I have like no. incredibly talented people, but the people that I'd worked with before were very outside, you know, Scott Keevan, it was very early on in his career in Cabin Fever. Now he's at that level, but. Um, you know, Milan Khadima on the hostel film shooting in Prague and shooting in South America with Antonio Quercia for Green Inferno and Knock Knock. You're just like, I like going with the local person that's the best person there that is going to bring something special. And Rohir, it was, it was great to have, to have time to shoot, you you're shooting on the, the Skyfall Alexa and you're really get to light it and take the time to light it and design it and say, okay, I want to have, a car hanging there. I want to have this there. I want to crash this there. And, be, and you can have it and you can do it. I mean, you don't just get anything out. You have to be responsible. And we, it was yeah. a very, very took a lot of work on all of the team. And, you know, you just get cut back because it's not a hundred million dollar studio film. Um, it is a studio movie, with a lot more resources, but stuff gets cut back, cut back, cut back until you just keep pushing and you're, you go, we absolutely, absolutely need this. And it makes you really narrow down what you need and fight for what you need. But it's my job now to show that I can, you know, work in a studio canvas, do a movie that's, you know, mainstream in this way, and really show that I can work with a major star and get a great performance that other actors, stars feel comfortable working with me. And I think everyone feels like, okay, you like can handle the scares and the violence and the performances are good in his movies, but how, how is that going to translate to, you know, how are you going to make the Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson jump, which is ultimately what you want to do.
1: And this is, well, yeah, what you want to do is to be able to make films of your own, but on a studio level yeah. uh, that reaches the widest possible audience.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in, the thing is reaching the widest possible audience, the, the truth is I've been very, I've really submitted to the process that all I can control is the process and not the results. And mm-hmm. I used to be very results oriented and really obsessed over every ad, every game. And I think it's good. I it's remember more, all your involvements at openings of your yeah, movies in your zombie covered, makeups and all. covered in blood. Which, by the way, at the time, it mattered. It helped. I it mean, did. It got attention. You had to be like, "Hey, look at me!" This is yeah. you know, it's, it's all there was. Were kind of horror fan sites. So there wasn't Twitter. Didn't exist any of this stuff. But now, you know, there is a much different way to reach audiences. You don't necessarily need to do that, but really my philosophy is just continue to make great work that I'm proud of and write my own ideas. But if a project comes along the way that I would love to do, then sure I'll, I'll do it. I I'm, I'm happy to go in and submit and fight to get a studio job and maybe I'll have some great experiences, maybe bad ones, but I really, really feel very lucky. Like when I was making death wish, we shot in Chicago and a lot of it in Montreal and I had the crew that had worked on X-Men and the Revenant just thinking like I get to wake up every day go to work and shoot a scene and play on the camera and get the takes right. It's like, I love it so much that that's what, I. this is, this is what I want to keep doing. Do you draw or paint? Um, I do. I draw. I mean, my mom paints and I never, and I used to do watercolors and things, but I didn't really, I've never sort of set up my house for that. But drawing, I love drawing. I was a doodler. I was a big doodler. And I read that Paul McCartney was a doodler. Like mm-hmm. all of my, I go back now and I look at all my notebooks, and a lot of my early ideas when I was eight, nine, ten years old, things that I was drawing. I mean, I was drawing eyeballs being popped out of hand and <laughs> chains up. My, my parents always got the phone call of what's wrong with Eli. And they say, nothing. He's a kid. He's drawing. So I love, um. I know. I I'm love a psychotherapist. It. Yeah. No, it's I love fine. it. I love, I love drawing. I, yeah. I, I try to do that. I mean, I, I don't think I'm very good. But that is something you know. I, I have like crayons and crayons and watercolors, and sometimes I have an idea and I can't figure it out, and I'll just start sketching and drawing. Do you do any sketching digitally? Uh, no, I do not. It's not that I'm against it. I play. I play music. I, play, I was going to say, do you what instruments? You well, playing? I play. I play guitar. I grew up playing, learning guitar, and then for the last five years, I've been studying classical piano. Wow. So, sort of focusing my brain to learn, you know, a phrase. Of Beethoven or Bach or Mozart, and it's tough because you can't. You get interrupted by shooting, and piano. You really have to do it every day. But I have a terrific piano teacher named Scott Hiltzik, who's coming to my house twice a week for like very intense piano lessons. Wow. So, and I just thought this is going to. I said I need a hobby that I can do into my nineties, mm. and it, the studies show that what it does for your brain, there's actually no comparison. It's like so many different parts of your brain are activated when you play piano that people that you know, play piano, stay mentally very, very sharp into their nineties. And, you know, you need energy to be a director. Quentin always talks about this, that yeah. your thirties, forties and fifties, like after that, like it's hard to keep that energy. People get comfortable in the chair, you know, in sixties, like there, but there's some directors that can do it. You know, you look at, you know, Woody Allen, Clint Eastwood, Scorsese and Ridley Scott. I mean, these people are like machines. It's impressive because mm-hmm. it's exhausting making a film, not just cause you have to get up early but because you just are constantly staying on top of every detail all the time and you have to keep that focus 1000% all the way through the editing process. So, you know, a lot of it just gets, just gets tiring. Yeah.
1: Well, it, it's interesting how a lot of filmmakers or film fans, it's what they do for a living. It's their hobby. It's everything in their lives. But there are things to be excited about outside of that too. And it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about at this stage you are now pushing forward so heavily into learning classical piano and uh, you know yeah. serious well I
0: also want to write music i mean i wake, yeah. i'm waking up with songs in my head i have no way to express them so you know learning piano as an as an adult is extremely extremely i also learned to surf so i was taking my my wife's big surfer and we were in chile over the holidays and I'd like a surf teacher and I loved it. I want to start doing that in California. I mean, these are these are things that I'm pushing myself. I started taking boxing while I was shooting the movie because Cammy, who plays Bruce's daughter, is always going to boxing and she drags me to boxing and I loved it. I and it's not getting in a ring and getting hit, but working <laughs> with hitting the pads, hitting the I found it was the most amazing, energizing release for any stress during the movie kept me in shape. And now every day I'm like jumping. It's like, it, it's, you know what, it's great to find something that you've never done that you're like, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to like really lock in and do it. Not that, you know, I'm not like just Elba. I'd never do a professional fight, but mm. I need to find ways to switch. I can't lift weights the way I did in glorious bastards. because I get too many injuries now. You know, it's, it's like, you, if you're going heavy with weights, you really have to do it with a trainer every day or you can really injure yourself. Um, So I need to find other ways in boxing and surfing. I'm like, okay, if I can box and surf and play piano, then my body is flexible. My reflexes are sharp. I can stay incredibly healthy. And that all sort of feeds into directing. And when you're directing, you're actually way more calm. You're mentally acute. I I think that learning piano has really helped me juggle multiple projects. It It just focuses my brain and expands my mind in a way that... You know, I sweat when I play piano because it's like your brain is thinking so much. You think, God, Jesus, I haven't done this since high school. You know, it's great.
1: We've got some questions from our listeners, but before we get to that, I want to tell you about BarkBox. Again, for you, the listeners of Postmortem, BarkBox is offering an opportunity to receive one free extra month of BarkBox at BarkBox.com. Every month, BarkBox picks the best all-around treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, including allergies and heavy chewer preferences. All edibles are made in the USA or Canada, and 100% of their products are tested on their own animals. BarkBox is a great way to try a variety of treats and toys from local and small businesses that you may not otherwise be able to find. Each monthly box is themed. Country Fair, Bark Ball, Poo York City, Brooklyn Hipster, etc. New and unique toys continue to keep dogs engaged, interested, and happy. If your dog does not like something in the box, we'll send you something they'll love for free. Free shipping on any bark box within the continental U.S. To receive one month free, go to getbarkbox.com forward slash mortem. Again, that's get. Barkbox.com, that's G E T B A R K B O X.com forward slash mortem, M O R T E M, to receive an extra month of Barkbox for free. This was a question that came up that I wasn't aware of, but um, Chris wrote in and asked, I'm a big fan of the Rotten Fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not known for animated comedy, but is that something you'd like to explore further?
0: I would love to. I mean, I put a couple of them on YouTube. Um, I started an animation, you know, I looked at Terry Gilliam, David Lynch, Tim Burton, a lot of my heroes had started with animation. And even when I was doing my student film restaurant dogs, which I put on our crypt TV or digital channel, um, they, I, I half, I didn't animate a Vietnam flashback cause I was like, I can't <laughs> afford to shoot stuff. So I started animating it and I looked at Terry Gilliam's cutout style animation, I started with a series, uh, for actually for WCW wrestling in 1999 called Chowdaheads. Heads. And I, my friend and I, we wanted to do like King of the Hill set in Massachusetts. And we were going to call it Massholes, <laughs> which, you know, someone realized had the word assholes in it. But, um, we pitched it to Peter Guber, who's like, it's funny. It's mad. It's irreverent. He's like a total masshole. He's from Boston. Right. So he said, well, you know, WCW wrestling is, is looking for something like this. at the time they had the number one show, they had 35 million viewers. And they're like, let's start it with these one minute two-minute interstitials that we'd show, like the way The Simpsons started on Tracy Ullman Show. And so we were about to air. I did eight of them. And then the, Eric Bischoff, the CEO, got fired. And then they said, we're going to hold off on airing them. MTV might want them. And then MTV said, we're not doing Beavis and Butthead anymore. We're doing this new stuff called reality because this show, The Osbournes, we had. It's reality. This is in 99, 2000. And then, so I, this, then it's like, well, don't worry about TV. The internet is the new thing. And this site, Z.com, gave me money to do my own stop motion show. And I always wanted to do a show. My friend Noah Belson and I, who plays, guitar man in cabin fever we grew up together <laughs> and we did all the voices in chowder i loved drawing the design i had some very cool cal arts kids that worked on the crew to you know actually doing the like the key framing the animation and the whole thing wrote produced directed it voiced, voiced it, it. Yeah. it was so much fun that's great they never saw the light of day so then we do rotten fruit and this was when it was like Oh, the internet's taking over. People are still on dial-up. So like these tiny little windows. (laughs) Um, And we did it. I wanted it to look like Davy and Goliath, Claymation, but with apples and oranges. (laughs) But they're really like the most vulgar, disgusting, like, you fucking cunt, like horrible British louts. (laughs) And we did all the voices again. And I put a few of them on the Cabin Fever DVD. And now they're floating around on YouTube. And we loved it so much. I actually saved all the characters and we wanted to do it. And I have definitely have some kids' animated ideas. I just was like, after a while, uh, then my agents were like trying to sell me, like, oh, you got to create the next SpongeBob. And I was like, I love kids' animation, but I really want to make horror movies. Everyone's like, what? And so I had to <laughs> use the Rotten Fruit to raise money for Cabin Fever. And oh, wow. Sam Fralick, bless his heart, thought they were so funny said, I will give you money for a horror movie. And the guy put up his house to do it. It was amazing. It was an incredible story I'd have you. But but the animation, I love it. And everything, what's cool about animation is it's total world creation. You know, there's nothing. It's literally just no blankness. Yeah. But it's just, you're turning with a total blank canvas. And I thought about my mom as a painter. Look, I, I, I would do animation as a hobby when I was eight years old. So we would, t- we, my mom had a friend, an artist, whose son, this guy named Daniel Polonsky, he was probably 19. I thought he was, you know, he had a beard. So to me, he was like an adult. Come over to our house and show us. We paid him. My mom organized this, an animation class. And we, every kid paid him like 25 bucks or something for him to do animated movies. So he, each week he would come over. We'd do a different style. We'd do drawn animation. We'd do claymation. We'd do stop frame um. animation. And, I was trying to animate the thing that was like, you know, the head being <laughs> nice. severed. And our first movie we did, we, we unpeeled an orange. And we called it a clickwork orange because <laughs> the camera would make a click and uh-huh. we would send in the Super 8 film and get it back three weeks later. And when I was 11, we had a retrospective in my at my school, in my class, and I brought in a projector and showed all my movies. And the kids were like, what? This is what you do? Like, this is what you do in your free time? You're making movies? Yeah. It was so... It was like these little two-minute, and my brothers and I, we all did them together. So I loved animation, always did it all through high school. And then when I was in film school at NYU, I continued doing animation and live action. So I think that that's one of the reasons that I've been able to design my films The way that I have is because I always looked at it like my mom is the painter. You start with total blankness, and every single color and every element in the frame matters. I think it's incredible training for direction.
1: Okay, you can reach us on Twitter, at PostMortemMG, one word, of course. And then don't forget, you can subscribe on iTunes. Rate us and leave feedback so we can find ways to make the show even better. Thanks for uh, spending time with us here on
0: PostMortem. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks. Congratulations on the show. I'm so excited about it. Thanks for listening to Post Mortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.